Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, episode 11, What's Wrong with Mexico? I'm Brandon Seal. Now that's a provocative title, isn't it? Of course, there's nothing wrong with Mexico, but there is something very different, and at times, very maddening about it, even to Mexicans. In the previous 10 episodes, we've explored the peculiarities of Mexico through the lens of its unique relationship with oil. And so, in thinking more broadly about Mexican history, I want to make another recommendation up front here. Go read Luis Rubio's The Problem of Power, published just a few months ago and available on the website of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. His analysis informs a lot of what I'm going to say here, though I have to confess that I probably didn't arrive at my conclusions in so nearly a coherent manner as he did. Regardless, The Problem of Power is the most sober, honest, and practically achievable vision that I've come across yet for improving on some of the challenges that everyone in Mexico seems to agree exist. But let's get back to oil, and let's revisit the beginning, that great oil moment in Mexico's history, the expropriation of 1938, the event that so defined Mexico's national identity in the 20th century. And let's evaluate whether it achieved its own objectives. On the one hand, it's hard to argue that the expropriation had anything other than a retarding effect on Mexico's oil industry. For 10 to 15 years after the expropriation, everything stagnated. Production didn't recover to its pre-expropriation peak until 1974, some 36 years later. And the last 30 years of recent history have served up ample evidence that a state-run monopoly is a really awful way to develop any resource, albeit a potentially really effective way to exacerbate corruption and even fund criminal enterprise. But a Mexican oil nationalist will be quick to point out that, even if the resource was not developed as fully by Pemex as it could have been by private industry, at least the benefits went to Mexicans and not to foreign capital. I'm not sure I agree with this on a factual basis, as I think you could make a pretty compelling case that the net benefits to Mexicans would have been much greater over the last 75 years without the expropriation, even if some of those benefits had accrued to foreigners, though in fairness we're dealing strictly with hypotheticals at this point. Yet I will give the oil nationalists this, inciting the Mexicanness of the post-expropriation Mexican oil field as a virtue in and of itself, I think they're identifying something crucial to understanding why the Mexican oil experiment persisted for as long as it did. It's because it did exactly what its most vocal constituencies, namely the Mexican president, the labor movement, Mexican industry, and the Mexican treasury, wanted it to do. Up until the Mexican government really began to hide national debt within Pemex in the 1980s, Pemex had done quite a fair job of balancing their wholly inconsistent mandates and serving multiple masters, all while discovering some of the largest oil fields in the history of the world. I've said it multiple times and I'll say it again. Pemex was and is a spectacularly profitable company on a pre-tax basis. It has funded on average more than a third of the Mexican federal budget for most of its existence. It was effectively the largest single employer in Mexico for much of the 20th century. It stabilized and subsidized hydrocarbon prices for Mexico's businesses and Mexico's poor alike. It shielded Mexican industry from the swings of international commodity prices and was a crucial contributor to the Mexican miracle of the 1960s and 70s that almost brought Mexico's standard of living to par with the first world. This is why I'm always quick to defend the ongoing importance of Pemex as an institution and as a symbol. But having been raised in the Texas oil field, I can't help but wonder what Mexico would be like today if, instead of having some 9,000 wells producing, it boasted a number closer to Texas's 250,000. I assure you there's enough oil under the ground in Mexico to do it. But here again, unfortunately, I think the oil nationalists can give a pretty damning counterargument to this hypothetical. Not because their ideology is right, I don't think it is, but because Mexican history does seem to support their cynical view of how Mexico's economy really works. And that critique is this. Mexico's oil field was never going to develop along the lines of Texas's, 
with widespread economic opportunity at all levels of the value chain. And this doesn't have anything to do with Mexico's continental legal tradition instead of the American tradition which invests ownership of the subsoil in the landowner. Recall that Porfirio Diaz had effectively wiped away that distinction in 1884, leading the early development of Mexico's oil field to look a lot more like Texas than anywhere else in the world. But what even Porfirio couldn't wipe away was that strong corporatist strain that seems to inform so much of Mexican political thought. As an American working in Mexico for the last 13 years, it took me a long time to appreciate that Mexico's political spectrum doesn't overlay America's left-right spectrum very well at all. The debate in Mexico revolves around how power should be wielded, and for the benefit of whom, but never around the proper role of government itself. In Mexico, there is almost a presumption that interest groups, including businesses, must have their existence recognized, protected, and advantaged by the government to be legitimate at all. And this is because the Mexican right and the Mexican left are united in the belief that things work best when power is concentrated at the top and when the economy is directed from above, the Mexican left preferring a traditional sort of collectivism and the Mexican right preferring a sort of soft phalangism. And so, if I'm speaking honestly here, I have to agree with the oil nationalists that I don't think there's any reason to believe that Mexico's oil field ever could have developed like Texas's. Even in a world where the oil expropriation never happened, it still would have ended up looking a lot like any other industry in Mexico, highly consolidated and highly dependent on the favor of whoever was in power. But so then why is this one trait of economic life so firmly entrenched? Why couldn't a full-on deregulation of the energy market create economic competition and spur Mexico's oil field to be the next Colombia, say, full of small, innovative companies exploiting niches up and down the value chain? Well, it's because of something much deeper in Mexican society, much stronger even than any law, and frankly, I think it's the lens through which everything in Mexico has to be understood. So get ready now. Here it comes. My great, big, bold conclusion about Mexico. Mexico is a clientelistic society. Let me pull from Wikipedia to define what I mean a little better. Quote, Clientelism is the exchange of goods and services for political support, often involving an implicit or explicit quid pro quo. End quote. More broadly, clientelism is an entire system of social organization that defines obligations in terms of relationships and favors owed, rather than in terms of written laws or contracts. And the truth is, it's a remarkably efficient means of social organization in the absence of a strong judicial system or uniformly known and enforced laws. The clientelistic tendencies already present in Mexican society reemerged with a vengeance after the Mexican Revolution in response to abuses by the short-lived Mexican capitalist class and amidst the turmoil of the revolution itself. In a decade that boasted ten presidents, at least four different sovereign political conventions, and an entirely new constitution, personal relationships were the only thing that seemed to endure. These clientelistic relationships preceded the new, modern Mexican state, and so, in the minds of the men of that age, they superseded it as well. This was only confirmed and strengthened in the course of the next decade as the PRI party consolidated its control over the nation by absorbing the most vocal political constituencies into the party. In order to be able to accommodate so many different viewpoints, however, the party had to effectively abandon political ideology. Indeed, at some level, the ideology of the PRI party and the Mexican state generally during the 20th century was simply a commitment to clientelism as the best form of social organization. I think this helps make sense, too, of all the curious theater of Mexican history that we've looked at. The Oil Workers Union, for example, continues to make Pemex among the least efficient oil companies in the world, but Pemex allows it because the union leadership's support is crucial to the success of the Pemex director's patrons in the next presidential election. Mexican businesses freely give money to candidates who publicly spew the rhetoric of wealth redistribution, 
knowing that they can trade in their support later for some sort of preferential economic treatment or perhaps even some sort of government-sanctioned monopoly. And even today, politicians in Mexico are fundamentally answerable only to the party leaders who control their nominations, even as vast swaths of the population do their best to elect representatives that would actually be responsive to their concerns. And all this because relationships in Mexico are valued more highly than other free market measures of so-called efficiency. And let's just come out and say it. Clientelism looks a whole lot like corruption. I mean, I guess it is corruption. It's rent-seeking in the worst sense of the word. And almost by definition, it prioritizes relationships and favor trading over the letter of the law. The fantasy of free market liberals like myself is that by deregulating industry as much as possible, breaking up government monopolies, and encouraging private industry, that you can recreate the miracle of America's economic system anywhere in the world. But it would never work that way in Mexico as the Mexican left is quick to point out. And it doesn't work because this clientelistic framework girds the entire structure of Mexican society and is, frankly, diametrically opposed to any form of social organization that prioritizes capital or contracts over personal relationships. And Mexico's experience with privatization and market liberalization in the 1980s and 90s has borne out the Mexican left's skepticism. The great national companies were sold off to well-connected insiders while foreign investment and competition were still statutorily limited. So instead of inefficient bureaucratic state entities generating meager profits, the great national champions were suddenly able to realize great efficiencies in non-competitive markets with all the benefits accruing only to the well-connected, not to the general consumer. And so when critics of the Mexican energy reform think about opening up the Mexican oil field, this is what they're thinking of. And all of this is too bad because even if the critics of the Mexican energy reform are right about Mexico's crony capitalistic tendencies, their ideology betrays another badly mistaken assumption about the oil field generally. This is the view of the oil field as an exercise simply in taking money out of the ground and putting it in your pocket. The idea that the oil is just sitting there, ready and able to be extracted profitably in any price environment and at any time by whoever is granted the right to do so. If, on the other hand, you understand the oil field as like any other productive enterprise engaged in true value creation in a competitive international market, you start to appreciate the true opportunity cost of anything that creates inefficiencies for that enterprise. Complying with arbitrary reporting obligations takes money away from geophysical studies that could have discovered new reservoirs. Appeasing bureaucrats wielding deliberately ambiguous regulations takes resources away from engineers who might otherwise be experimenting with new technologies to unlock previously uncommercial reserves. And levying astronomical tax and royalty burdens leaves resources in the ground permanently, their value lost forever to oil companies and government alike. But this is the sad impasse at which Mexico finds itself today. Mexico can't ever fully open its oil field out of fear that it would simply generate a windfall to well-connected political interests. But because it won't be fully opened, the Mexican oil field will remain small, enclosed, and tightly controlled by the well-connected. It will never generate even a fraction of the benefits that we have seen on this side of the border, where it has proven to be the primary generator of economic activity in Texas for a century and a major source of competitive advantage for all industries in this country that are able to take advantage of cheap hydrocarbons. And because it will fall short, the critics of the Mexican energy reform will appear to be proven right. At the end of the day, the energy reform in Mexico won't live up to its full potential until you have a real commitment to the rule of law generally within the country. I'm not saying anything new or unique here. This is the core of Luis Rubio's critique in The Problem of Power, which I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Until economic actors in Mexico can trust the contracts they sign and the laws that they operate under to be uniformly enforced, the Mexican economy will continue to lag. Perhaps the status quo advantages Mexican businesses to some degree, 
But in the end, it's Mexican consumers that are paying the price in the form of higher-priced goods and services for almost everything. Clientelism is really a tax on anyone who isn't well-connected. And worse, I think that clientelism makes outlaws out of honest people. I've had Mexicans try to tell me that they need a highly centralized power structure with authority concentrated at the top to impose order on all aspects of Mexican society because Mexicans aren't honest. They tell me that Mexicans cheat on their taxes whenever they can. They steal when they think no one is looking, and they cut in lines in broad daylight. But I don't buy that, because Mexicans only do that in Mexico. When those same people come to the U.S., they obey the law. They don't try to bribe cops, and they sure as hell pay their taxes. Sadly, in my opinion at least, the Mexican system can make outlaws out of honest people, because too often laws aren't promulgated in Mexico in order to be really enforced. They're promulgated to create touch points on every aspect of Mexican life. Points that require citizens and businesses to check in at regular intervals to the clientelistic power systems that govern Mexican society. And in a system where everything is illegal, unless the law explicitly provides otherwise, everyone becomes a lawbreaker, or a lawbender at least. And that's a really terrible thing. And it creates the double tragedy of corruption in Mexico. Corruption, of course, is bad. But if the response to corruption is to create more regulation and insert more bureaucracy, you simply create more of these clientelistic touch points, which in turn become future points of corruption. And so the rule of law is undermined at every turn. Like I said, I'm not the first to observe that perhaps the biggest problem facing Mexico is the absence of rule of law. Yet, as I've also said, I refuse to believe that law-breaking is hardwired into the Mexican psyche. It's not. But perhaps clientelism is. And my unfortunate conclusion for the moment is that law-bending, call it, is almost a necessity under a clientelistic system. I think, then, that when we ask, what's wrong with Mexico?, what we're really asking is, what would it take to instill respect for the law at all levels of Mexican society? Everyone seems to recognize this as an issue. Every incoming Mexican president acknowledges the problem, and typically every Mexican president starts his term with a very public and high-profile assault on a corrupt official. We saw Jorge Díaz Serrano in La Quina in the 1980s, then Raúl Salinas in the 1990s, La Maestra in 2013, to name a few. But these are more theater than anything else a reminder to rival factions in government that a new sheriff is in town and a ritualistic scapegoating of the previous administration's sins. Luis Rubio's recommendation for improving the rule of law in Mexico is to focus on due process. By making due process sacrosanct and requiring it as a first and core principle of judicial reform and indeed in all levels of Mexican government, Rubio believes that you could spread respect for the rule of law like a virtuous infection through the organs of the state. I like this idea, and I hope someone follows through on it. But I still remain a little skeptical that things will or ever could change in Mexico, because I struggle to see how a non-cronyistic politician could ever rise to the top of the Mexican political system. How would he or she even get to the top without exchanging favors? Or how would he or she truly circumvent the party system and redirect the ship of state when the entire ship is crewed by people who owe their jobs to the old party captains? I don't know. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Anyway, it's time for me to stop trying to solve Mexico's problems. As I already said at the beginning of this episode, I don't think the question, what's wrong with Mexico, is a real question. I think it simply betrays a pretty obnoxious worldview and a broader ignorance of Mexican history at large. First, Mexico isn't just a prepubescent America, slowly maturing into a so-called economically developed country. And despite appearances to outsiders, Mexico does work. According to various polls, 
Mexicans on average are just as happy or happier with their lives than Americans, even if their dissatisfaction with their own government exceeds that of even Venezuela. Second, when you compare Mexico's experience in the 20th century with the rest of Latin America, Mexico fared far better. As Luis Rubio points out, its clientelistic system achieves stability without violent suppression. Sure, the PRI party's rule was mockingly referred to as the perfect dictatorship, but that's because the tyranny was so light. Yes, everyone had to go kiss the ring of a petty bureaucrat or a party apparatchik now and then, but the rules, for people in the system anyway, were fairly clear and well-known. Mexico has simply always been a little out of step with the rest of the world. Its independence movement wasn't really Jeffersonian or Bolivarian. Its revolution actually preceded the other great social revolutions of the 20th century, but as a result it doesn't map cleanly onto the ideologies that define them. And its oil expropriation came nearly 20 years before the other great oil nationalizations, but for very different reasons and with a drastically different approach afterwards. All of which really should just serve to confirm what most people listening to this podcast already knew. Mexico is a special place, precisely because it is so hard to put in a box. Come on, admit it. That's why we love to talk about it so much. In closing, I'm just going to make one last point too. Before any Americans listening to this podcast get too high and mighty, we should probably confess to those sectors of our own society that operate along clientelistic or even corrupt lines as well. There is a distinction between giving a government official a bag of cash while he's in office versus giving him a high-paying job once he's left office, but that gets real fuzzy real quick. So rather than use this exercise in comparative history to look down our nose at our southern neighbor, we probably ought to use it to reflect back on ourselves. That's it? Wow. I have nothing more to say except thank you. I've been so lucky to have had the opportunity to distill years of research writing and living in Mexico into these four hours of podcasts. And even more so, fortunate to have so many people actually listen to them. I'm very proud of what we produced here, and I'm very grateful that you let me share it with you. As always, you can download old episodes at www.brandonseal.com. And I'd like to ask if you'll do me a favor. Will you go on to iTunes and leave a rating for this podcast? Good, bad, or indifferent. If this podcast made any impression on you, leave me a message. Let me know you made it through the whole adventure and tell me what you thought. Adios. Adios.